Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, for decades, the Atlanta-based Carter Center has been working to promote awareness about mental health issues. It's a crisis championed by Rosalind Carter during the time Jimmy Carter was governor of Georgia. And thus began the learning process that was to cause me great concern for the weak and vulnerable human beings who need love and compassion and support and who are often the last to be remembered when appropriations are being handed out in state budgets how the Carter Center is continuing its global and domestic mission about mental health. Plus, from a recent forum, five Atlanta mayoral candidates hear directly from those who have experienced homelessness. We found ourselves once again without a home, trying to navigate a system that seems to work more against people than for them. As mayor, what will you do to address these issues that make it nearly impossible for families to access safe and affordable housing? All that's coming up in just a moment, but first this, Early voting begins tomorrow in municipal elections throughout Metro Atlanta. Now, what may be different this election season? Well, there's a lot going on. The biggest contest we, of course, know here in Fulton, as it relates to Atlanta, is Atlanta's mayoral race. But there are several cities that are also picking mayors and city council folks, and voters will also choose school board members. In Gwinnett County, 13 cities are holding local elections. And up in Cobb County, a countywide East Bloss vote is on the ballot, along with several city contests. And because of Georgia's new voting laws, now drop boxes for mail-in absentee ballots are limited to a few locations. And they're only accessible inside during early voting hours. You need to check with your local county's elections department to find out where where they're all located. Now, voters who plan to mail in their ballots need to make sure... It gets into the county of your where you live 11 days before the November 2nd election. Now, that deadline is Friday, October 22nd. In other news, the COVID-19 vaccination gap between black and white Americans is starting to shrink. The latest data reveals some counties in Georgia have a greater share of black residents vaccinated. And the report released last week from nonprofits Shurgo Ventures and COVID Act Now collected this information from more than 700 counties throughout the nation. Black residents were vaccinated at higher rates than white residents in 36 percent of those counties, many of them in the state of Georgia. A separate analysis found from the nonprofit Kaiser Family Foundation revealed 54 percent of white folks were vaccinated compared to 46 percent of blacks. Researchers are happy. They say that disparity has narrowed for some time. And both reports stress that more work needs to be done to reach black and Hispanic populations both of which are at increased risk of severe outcomes from the coronavirus infection. Finally, it was a pretty good weekend for area sports teams, college and pros. First pitch on the way to Mealy. Round ball out to third, Riley to Ozzie for one. Ozzie to first, double play. And the Braves are heading back to Atlanta with the series even one apiece. Uh, The Atlanta Braves are back home today with a chance to take a lead in their best-of-five playoff series against the Brewers. Game four of the series is on Tuesday, also here in Atlanta. Now, over in London, the Atlanta Falcons beat somebody, the New York Jets. And throwing corner of the end zone, touchdown! The rookie Kyle Pitts, his first NFL touchdown. Ah, good day for Kyle Pitts. And look who's number one, the Georgia Bulldogs. Yeah, the dogs are now the number one team in the country, according to the AP College Football Poll. Why? Well, Georgia beat Auburn on Saturday, but didn't take over the number one spot until Alabama 
lost to Texas A&M. My apologies. I'm so sorry. Dan Wisenhunt from Decatur's.com. Next up, the dogs play Kentucky Saturday at Sanford Stadium in Athens. And like Georgia, Kentucky has not lost a game this season. So somebody's going to experience their first loss. This should be a good one. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This past Sunday was Mental Health Day, and the theme was Care for All, Let's Make It a Reality. Well, the reality is this. Mental health affects all of us around the globe. It's estimated one billion people live with a mental disorder and in low-income countries. More than 75% of people with a disorder never even receive treatment. Each year, 3 million people die due to substance abuse related to mental disorders. 50% of mental health disorders start by the age of 14. And perhaps the most jarring, every 40 seconds, a person dies by suicide. This information comes from the World Health Organization. And for decades now, the Atlanta-based Carter Center has been working to promote awareness about mental health issues including advocating for better policies, equity for mental health care, as well as reducing stigma and discrimination against those with mental disorders. At the core of all this has been former First Lady Rosalind Carter. It was a concern Ms. Carter has been championing for many decades, and it goes back to when Jimmy Carter was governor of Georgia. And thus began the learning process that was to cause me great concern for the weak and vulnerable human beings who need love and compassion and support and who are often the last to be remembered when appropriations are being handed out in state budgets. Well, joining me now is Dr. Kashaf Ijaz. He's Vice President for Health Programs at the Carter Center. And Dr. Ijaz, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me and having me on your show. Let's begin with an update about the Carter Center, because you all, like everyone else, you had to adjust your services and programming due to the pandemic. Now we're 20 months later. How would you assess you all were able to achieve some of the initiatives to get those going and, and all the campaigning that you've been doing. Uh, how would you assess you are able to do that? Well, thank you um, for the question. In, in terms of Carter Center, as, as um, most of you know, it's a non-governmental organization, which was established by President and Mrs. Carter. Mm-hmm. And the Carter Center has helped to improve life of, for people in more than 80 countries by resolving conflicts, advancing human rights, preventing diseases, and improving mental health care. In terms of um, our work um, has continued on in terms of uh, the disease eradication and eliminating efforts, which are primarily focused on neglected tropical diseases. Um, And um, the key thing is that the Carter Center works with the communities, Mm -hmm. and we work with the ministries of health globally. And when we work with the communities, it's the trust that we have actually built with the communities, which has enabled us even to work and continue our work um, safely uh, during the course of this pandemic. And uh, that has been uh, very heartening and encouraging because uh, we have been working with the communities and the community uh, volunteers mm-hmm. who have actually carried on our work very, very, um, you know, even during this um, pandemic. They have um, they have continued on the work, and we know it. Ha- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You want to say something else? Uh, yes. And, and in terms of um, you know, since we're talking about mental health, um, we have been engaged in promoting awareness about mental health issues, informing public policy, achieving equity for mental health care um, comparable to other health care, and reducing stigma and discrimination against those with mental illness. And I, I also want to mention uh, Mrs. Carter's uh, quote here, that there is no health without mental health. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and when we look at the work that we have been doing in, the, in this particular area, our strategy has been threefold. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, on advocacy, 
to seek to ensure that behavioral health and well-being are prioritized in public health policy. Number two, stigma reduction. The Rosalind Carter Fellowships for Mental Health Journalism supports journalists uh, from Latin America, mental health, uh, I'm sorry, uh, for, uh, for working on mental health issues, mm -hmm. not only from Latin America, but from Middle East, as well as uh, United States and exploring society's mental health challenges. Uh, these fellowships have given journalists resources uh, to help improve practices and policy through investigation and to dismantle stigma through storytelling. Let's talk about that, Dr. Ijaz. Let's let's begin begin with stigma reduction. And you and I both know that that is not something that can be easily done. And how would you assess how you all have made progress in that area? And particularly in, in for, for nations or, or in for areas around the globe where it's already, it's challenging here in the U.S., but extremely challenging to access mental health resources because of stigma. Yes. Um, so the Carter Center, um, you know, has been um, driving the, the Georgia Parity Collaborative, and um, we have been uh, working on policy initiatives to increase enforcement and implementation of behavioral health parity to improve access for uh, to mental health care for all, mm -hmm. ensuring access to school-based behavioral health interventions and services for youth, and then also advancing capacity to provide services for older adults with serious mental illness. Um, and then the most important thing is that the, through the Rosalind Carter Journalism Fellowship Program for Mental Health, um, where we have actually had more than 200 uh, journalists from all over the world. They have been writing about um, mental health in order to um, say that the there, there, is, there should not be any social stigma associated with mental health and mental health can be treated and there needs to be access to mental health services that needs to be provided. And so they have been uh, one of the greatest advocates in, in helping reduce stigma related to mental health. Can you give our listeners a, an example of a nation or somewhere around the globe where you all have seen such a significant change on the positive with the programs you all are, are, are implementing and, and like maybe with other partners? Uh, can you give our, take our listeners to that part of the world for us and how you all were able to do it? So, um, so, so, so our journalists come from all over the world. We mm -hmm. have actually had journalists uh, who have actually uh, gone through the fellowship program from um, UAE, from Qatar, and from Latin America. And, um, you know, in those communities where not a lot of people talk about mental health or even write about it, mm -hmm. I mean, that's where um, our journalists who have actually gone, alumni from uh, this fellowship program, have been able to write about um, mental health, that mental illness is something which is treatable, less just like any other uh, health-related issue, and and people should not feel um, ashamed or stigmatized to to get get help and to reach out to um, uh, you know uh, healthcare uh, facilities and uh, providers in those areas. And this is this is where um, I think we have a big opportunity and responsibility um, more than ever. Um, and I, it really heartens me to um, that there has been a lot of mainstream discussions around mental health. Mm -hmm. And these are the opportunities to seek momentum, change policies, and treat mental health as any other health issue. So I imagine. So, in, oh, go yeah. Ahead. No, go I was ahead. just going to say I imagine in the pandemic which we know has had an extraordinary effect of those already dealing with some type of mental disorder. We know that this is now amplifying and highlighting the need for greater resources, for campaigns. Absolutely. Um, you know, even before the recent coronavirus pandemic, there was mental health uh, crisis in the United States. Um, nationwide, the suicide rates had increased, have increased about 31% since 2001. More than half of adults and children with mental health concern do not receive treatment. And obviously the fear of pandemic, grief, lack of uh, social connections and isolation among students and adults have led to increased uh, depression and anxiety and also suicidal ideation. Um, you know, nationally, if you look at uh, the data that Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 
um, have uh, recently provided, um, there has been a tragic psychosocial toll being exacted uh, by the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I'll just, you know, tell you that greater than 24% of Americans show clinical signs of depression and greater than 30% have show, are now showing symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. Um, according to uh, Kaiser Family Foundation poll, nearly half of the Americans report the coronavirus crisis is harming their mental health. Mm -hmm. And then more Americans are reaching out for support. Um, you know, the federal um, emergency hotline, which is run by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, or SAMHSA, for people in emotional distress, they registered a more than a thousand percent increase in April, which was um, compared with the same uh, time last year, with roughly 20,000 people texting, um, you know, the line as well. Mm -hmm. So the communities are in need of care. And uh, we also have an opportunity where we are in a momentum phase where, where there, we are in a moment where we can demand and make positive change because more people are speaking out about mental health. So we need to seize the moment. Um, and this is really very important. Dr. Ijaz, you talk about seize the moment. You said this is the time to do it. As vice president for health programs at the Carter Center, are you all looking at new and different initiatives or partnerships then to address what you just said? Because if you want to seize this moment while it's here, this is the time to yes. do it. Exactly. And so so we, we have been working with uh, our many of our partners uh, as part of the Georgia Par uh, Parity Collaborative with, more, with a group of more than 30 organizations. We work with, um, uh, we have been working with uh, uh, the, the, the National Alliance for Mental Illness Georgia, and they just had a meeting um, um, last week. Uh, and their theme has been that this really is the year for mental health. This is where uh, we need to actually um, increase enforcement and implementation of behavioral health parity to improve access to care for all, mm -hmm. ensure access to school-based behavioral health interventions and, and services for youth, and, and advance capacity to provide services for older adults with serious mental illness. Mm. So, um, you know, we, we are actually very encouraged that um, um, they, 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 I'm excited that Georgia is poised to do something in mental health. Everyone who cares uh, about mental health care in Georgia, which should be all of us because we all have mental health and should should actually uh, be taking care of it and um, and should be expecting budgetary and legislation action. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we need to be asking for it and expecting it. And we are hoping that in January, you know, there might be some legislation coming out. You know, you mentioned a population that um, we've been hearing a lot in the news lately, and that is with youth. And I think it was just last week there was a global report that mentioned it was a well over a million kids had experienced the death of a caregiver or a parent due to COVID-19. And you think about that population, and I think it was a little bit over 140,000 here in the U.S. So... It's going to take a holistic approach, not just for the families, but you mentioned school-based behavioral health interventions. Absolutely. How do you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I mean, so the need is greater than ever to ensure healthcare access for all, which includes school-based behavioral health for children and their families. You know, uh, ideally, there should be mental health prevention professionals, which which should be available in all the schools. Um, so that so that they can actually attend to the to the needs of the the mental health needs of not only the children uh, who are affected but also their their families and adults as well. So, you know, absolutely, that is a very important aspect of the school-based behavioral health program that the Carter Center has been working on. I know you all try to stay out of politics in a sense with the work that you do, but let's be clear, Dr. Ijaz, because politics does enter into this because you have to have, you talked about legislation, whether it's at the state level or, or the federal level. Uh, how optimistic are you that now is the time that more will be paid in terms of funding and even beyond funding because you have to make sure that these programs and resources are not just a one and done, that they continue? Yes. So mental health is a bipartisan issue and it, because it affects all people. Um, the Carter Center is a nonpartisan uh, organization 
And this is a truly a nonpartisan issue. We, we, I actually commend and thank all of our policymakers for coming together on this issue. Um, so I, I'm actually really very encouraged, um, even in our own state mm -hmm. and, and, and nationally, because mental health is more important than ever. I mean, I was um, about a couple of weeks ago, I was in Geneva at WHO, where I mm -hmm. met with um, the leadership over there. And, uh, and I also met with uh, the leadership for the mental health program. And, um, and, and they basically were also focusing on their efforts on mental health more than ever, because mm -hmm. the pandemic has certainly highlighted uh, its importance to everybody. I mean, mental health was always important, mm -hmm. but it has definitely become exponentially important as a result of uh, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Is there an area, whether it's here domestically or, or around the world, that you all feel like there's still still a lot more to be done? And if it is, is it in stigma? Is it in making sure that there are re I mean, the actual resources, whether it's a clinic, whether it's, it's licensed counselors or, or, or what have you, what area do you all feel like you still need to really, really make some improvement in? Yes. So the Carter Center has been working globally on, on, on in our global behavioral health work. Um, and we have basically been working in Africa and, um, and, and in Africa, especially in Liberia, you know, that is where we have been working. Mm -hmm. um, and by, uh, as a result of our work, what we have been focusing on is to um, there's a dearth of well-trained mental health workforce or clinicians to actually help with the mental health care. And um, we have been there for a little more than a decade in Liberia, and uh, we're almost at our goal of uh, reaching 100 and, uh, tra training 160 clinicians hmm. in children and adolescent uh, mental health across all 15 counties in Liberia. And now there is, I mean, there is a, there is a need all over Africa for well-trained mental health professionals. And, and so, so we are actually now creating a community of practice in, in Africa and using distance learning tools like Project ECHO to work with the ministries of health and, and target the training of many more clinicians so that we can reach out to many more people in African uh, continent and in order to build their capacity to, to take care of uh, any kind of mental health issues that might be in their own communities. And Dr. Ijaz, before I let you go, I wanted to take the time to give you the time to reflect on the 50 years of being involved in this, and that, of course, is a former first lady, former first lady of governor, and that is Mrs. Rosalind Carter, and what she has meant to you all, because she's still a champion for this. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, Mrs. Carter has been a strong advocate for reducing social stigma associated with mental illness and increasing access to mental health services through policy change for 50 years. I mean, this year marks her 50th year mm -hmm. celebration of our commitment. And, um, and she was recently um, uh, given an, a health award by the World Health Organization in May of this year uh, in recognition of her efforts. And um, so Mrs. Carter had been thinking about this way ahead of all of us uh, about the importance of uh, mental health issues, um, the social stigma associated with mental illness, and how to deal with that proactively. And basically the provision of, uh, of mental health services to, for everybody so that they can actually, um, you know, uh, be treated. So, so, so obviously, there's a lot that we owe um, as, a, as, an, as a state, as a nation, and, and also as a global community to all the efforts that Mrs. Carter has been able to, uh, you know, draw the attention mm -hmm. towards the issues around mental health care. Dr. Kashaf Ijaz, Vice President for Health Programs at the Carter Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. A very important conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. 
Recently, Partners for Home, a nonprofit that manages the Atlanta Continuum of Care for Homeless Services and the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, also known as PAD, came together to present a mayoral candidate forum called the Responding to Homelessness, Critical Choices for Atlanta's Next Mayor. Now, the top five polling mayoral candidates were invited to answer questions, including the policing of persons experiencing homelessness and something a little different. The candidates heard personal stories from those who have been unsheltered. Serving as moderator, I welcomed current Atlanta City Council member Antonio Brown, current Atlanta City Council member Andre Dickens, Atlanta-based attorney Sharon Gay, current Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore, and Atlanta's 59th Mayor Kasim Reed. Today we're going to bring you two excerpts from the forum. So when we asked a question about reducing criminalization for people experiencing homeless, where does this begin with your administration if you are elected? And I'll start with Felicia Moore. So first, we, <clears throat> we've we already started that. Um, one reason why the Atlanta City Detention Center is pretty empty right now is that it's not being used as a de facto homeless shelter where a lot of people are being housed there because we've eliminated the uh, cash bail. But... I do think that, first of all, certainly training is some, something that's appropriate. But in my administration, in addition to the great work that's being done by PAD, I'm going to have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week response team that can respond to people uh, if they're unsheltered, if they're having behavioral issues or uh, mental health issues that are separate and apart from the police that are connected with our 911 system that can be dispatched immediately. I believe with having as many resources as we can uh, that can give social help to people will be helpful and it has to be matched with um, as well, housing or either some sort of service on the other end. I believe as much as I can find ways to keep our police from having to even interact on the first place, I will certainly stop any conflict on the second hand. But if they do have to interact, I certainly want our PAD as well as our other crisis interveners to be able to help as well train officers on the best way to approach them. Thank you, Ms. Moore. Mr. Reed. <clears throat> I want to follow the model that London Breed has been using effectively uh, in San Francisco. I think that we need to move to a care team approach that, had, that is staffed by folks um, who have a background uh, interacting with folks that may have uh, psychological challenges and other challenges. I think that the police department ought to be able to call these care teams immediately when they encounter someone that's having mental health issues. And I think that San Francisco and London Breed is doing a really nice job of it. I would like that entities to be connected directly to the organizations in this room because with homelessness and issues related to mental health, speed is so important. And getting to that individual as quickly as possible is so important. That's why they need the resources that they deserve uh, and a care team approach, which would be associated with APD, but separate from APD to coordinate faster with the organizations in this room. Thank you. Attorney Gay. Yes, I would certainly continue the effort that has been already been underway to looking carefully at our city ordinances and make sure we're truly not literally criminalizing homelessness. But we also have to have a plan because if we're not going to take people to the city jail for public urination or whatever the offense might be, we've got to have a plan for what we're going to do instead. A pad is a great start. We need a 24-7 approach to that, you know, whatever take that approach and it's got to be 24-7 because so many of the crises happen on the weekends, happen at night, happen at odd time, you know, middle of the night, uh, and just, you know, doesn't shut off at 7 o'clock when they turn the phones off. So we've got to be able to fund that and operate that 24 hours a day. The other thing I think we need to be very thoughtful about, and this really gets back to sort of one of my elements of my public safety plan, is we need to be very clear about what we want our police officers to do and give them the right training and the right equipment to do that. Not ask them to do things that mental service, mental health and social service professionals ought to do, but you need a very clear 
path to training the police on what to do and then having the resources to do it. Um, I've seen a lot of this up close and personal. I've gone a portion or many years of St. Luke's Episcopal Church, which has been, you know, literally on the ground with, with homeless issues and challenges for decades. And I've seen up close and personal how we've used strategies that have worked. We've struggled with strategies that maybe not have worked as well, uh, just with people gathering on our own campus. Uh, so I'm aware at a really granular level how complicated this is, but also how important it is to align, have the right strategy and then align the resources and the training with that strategy. Thank you. Mr. Dickens. Yeah, I see this in um, five key steps. First is listening and then collaboration and then training and then leadership. And of course, last is funding. Going back to the first is listening. I, I did not know about um, what uh, PAD was bringing to us when they started when I was uh, the community development chairman. When they came and they said, there's another way to do this, I listened. And I, and I learned a lot in that listening session, and, and over and over again, they were saying there was a better way. Um, it was a better way to go about doing this, and I said, that does sound like a more humane way to do this and to get it done. The second was collaboration, to be able to bring all these different agencies together, these different folks together, the police department, the various elements of the continuum of care, the service providers, to be able to collaborate and trust and build trust to work together, uh, to be able to do that was phenomenal, and so to do that again, and more effectively is what we have to do going forward. And then the next thing is leadership. You need strong leadership even right now to be able to communicate that this is the way of the future. This is 21st century uh, policing. This is also improved training. Yes, this is what's gonna happen on Atlanta streets and with Atlantans. And, and, and so leadership is gonna have to communicate the vision and, and make it plain so that people can follow it. And so then the, the rest of the elements will fall into place. Next is the training. We all know that. To be able to do this, you're going to have to train some people differently and to make sure that uh, how we do our 311 services uh, and, and 911 to be able to collaborate in that regard, to make sure that one hand is handing it off to the other in, in the fastest way possible to get people to the right uh, to the right, uh, continue, to the right service providers, et cetera. And then last but not least is funding. We all have said we want this to not just be from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We have met, we have this that has started in zone five and zone six and has grown to the whole city, which is phenomenal. Phenomenal, but we have to go from longer than 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, which means we need to triple the funding so that we can have the other uh, 12 hours plus the weekends, and we still need to have this collaborate with 311 so that those services can get uh, triaged and taken care of properly. So it's a five steps, and, and most of this has already been done um, for, for where we are today, but to move it forward, we have to repeat those five steps in order to do it and to, to multiply how fast and how effectively we do this across the whole city. Thank you, Mr. Dickens. Councilmember Brown. You know, as someone that works day in and day out, and I'm sure Catherine Marchman gets tired of me calling her cell phone to help out somebody that is unsheltered in the city of Atlanta because I call her so much, but she's always there to support me. Um, I think we, it, when we talk about our police interaction with our unsheltered population, I mean, we've sat and we've said that they're not skilled and trained to deal with mental health issues and social services issues and substance abuse issues. But it's greater than that, right? Because right now they're a part of the diversion piece is, is that, you know, on their performance review charts, the officers are, it's a point system. And Moki has done an incredible job of incorporating within that point system to incentivize officers that divert our unsheltered population to PAD, where they call PAD and they get a point for it as a part of their performance review. I think we have to continue that work. I believe that we need to include into that point system a diversion to our at-promise centers for our homeless youth. I also believe we, we have to enact a municipal ID program that will allow for a centralized intake process that will work with all of our care and service providers within the city of Atlanta so that when someone comes through our system, we can properly track them and we understand their conditions. We understand how to take them through this system 
And we do, we know where they're falling short because a lot of them continue to come through our judicial process, our municipal court system, and they get put right back on the streets and the wraparound services and support around them are very limited. So we've got to do a better job of ensuring that the pathway to success, to readapting our unsheltered population back into society, back into our system is a whole one that's complete that all of our pro providers can follow. And, you know, we, we talk about funding and, you know, we've put a ton of funding into our unsheltered population, you know, in Atlanta alone. And, you know, I think we've got to do a better job of preventing homelessness within our unsheltered population, because if we begin to continue to be reactive towards addressing the issue, then how do we ever catch up to solving the problem? So we need to start addressing things and expanding the work of the AVLF that was previously funded for families that are facing possible eviction and would lead to them being unsheltered. And we need to ensure that they're being properly funded. And also the officers are being supported with an emergency shelter program, right? What's the point of having a 24-hour service with a non-emergency response unit that if there's nowhere time, for Mr. them Brown. to go? Thank so you. we need to ensure that they have places to go within the city of Atlanta. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brown. That is time. If you're just joining Closer Look, we're bringing you two excerpts from a recent Atlanta mayoral forum on homelessness. It was presented by Partners for Home and the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, also known as PAD. The top five polling candidates were invited. During the forum, candidates heard personal stories from those who have experienced being homeless and the circumstances that led to being unsheltered. We're going to bring you one of those stories now. What's different about this forum is that you all are going to hear directly from people. I want to take this moment now to invite Ms. Holloman to share our story. Hi, my name is Lynette Holloman, and my family has experienced homeless more times than I can remember. This summer was our last, our latest episode with homelessness, happening when our landlord decided to sell the house that we were staying in, in the middle of a pandemic, no less. We were given 60 days to find a new place, and I know that seems like a lot, but for my family who lives paycheck to paycheck, and who also has an eviction on our record, and my husband has a felony conviction, that was not enough time. We've had to navigate for so much through our lives. The cycle of homelessness but seems to constantly follow us every single time we try to make progress. We've lived in the same home for three years with good rental history, and this is without a good landlord. We've saved money trying to afford a down payment on a house, and we got our credit score high enough for an FHA loan. Despite these successes, we still cannot overcome the barriers set in place before our 60 days were up. We found ourselves once again without a home trying to navigate a system that seems to work more against people than for them. As mayor, what would you do to address these issues that make it nearly impossible for families to access safe and affordable housing? Is it Mike? The Atlanta Housing Authority. Ms. Oh, I'm Thank you also for sharing your story. And it's another example of people can work hard, try to do everything right, and it still is very difficult to navigate, um, in part because of just sheer financial differences, not being able to afford what the rents are in Atlanta, but also, as you referenced, there's some other things, things that may have happened in your past or your family's past that, that are used as, as barriers. And so, is my mic still working? Yeah. So, okay, sounds like it wasn't. Um, first of all, I think, you know, we've talked earlier about transitional housing. You're not exactly a transitional housing category in the sense of having substance abuse issues, but we need to have housing that is available to people without having to check all those boxes. And just the pure private rental market isn't going to be sufficient because they can choose to make those kinds of distinctions. And unfortunately, the mayor of Atlanta is not going to be able to wave a magic wand and, and have a law to make all that go away. So we do need to have either provided by the city or provided by private partners in partnership with the city housing that doesn't have those regulatory barriers, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, we also, the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, as someone mentioned earlier, my law firm has been involved with AVLF for years, and they've had more programs recently, and, and I think there are other things that they're looking at to do to help people clear up their records, 
to navigate through those legal impediments that are being put in place for people who are trying, who are working hard and trying to rent housing. Uh, I think that's something else that probably needs to be done in a more intentional and comprehensive way uh, so that we can help people eliminate just on their own records the things that are that are barriers uh, to having access to housing. Uh, the, I guess the third thing is sort of what I, for lack of a better term, called navigators, is you mentioned you had 60 days, which sounds like a lot of time, but all those steps were very difficult to, to navigate. And so having more resources, whether it's city employees or private nonprofit employees who can help people do that blocking and tackling uh, to get through all of those barriers within the time frame. Uh, and I guess just the last thing is we just need to build more housing. Uh, you know, if we can increase our supply of housing, we'll have more choices, we'll have, you know, won't have as much of a cost burden. And some of that can be on public land, as we've talked about in this and other forums. Um, certainly, the Atlanta Housing Authority needs to get back in the business of actually building deeply affordable housing uh, because they can rent to people in a different way uh, than a private landlord can do. And so all of those are things that need to be implemented in a coordinated way so that when you knock on the door and say, I need help, I've got 60 days, the help can come to you in time. Thank you, Mr. Dickens. Yes, um, I wanted to get your last name again. Holloman. I didn't want to say Holloway. Holloman. Uh, thank you for sharing your story, and I, I can see the strength in you and how you have dealt with that issue and, um, and really come here today to be able to tell us your story. This is the type of story that people need to hear because they put a face or a background to homelessness that's not always the same. People try to put you in the exact same pathway, but this is unique. You worked hard. You saved money. You were prepared to try to do a down payment on a home. This is unique, and, it's, it's, and the story has to be told, which is why I'm glad you're sharing it. This is important for us to recognize that there's so many layers of support that people need. Um, Invest Atlanta has a down payment assistance program that has been uh, substantially very, very, uh, very helpful in getting people to, to homes. But there's also barriers to that, right? There's uh, requirements, and some of these things that are on people's records can be barriers to lenders. And we have to fight hard to overcome that and be very intentional about it, which is why working with groups like NACA, um, NACA is huge in being able to say your previous um, eviction history or uh, incarceration history should not be held against you. They were the ones who fought all the, the mortgage fraud of the 2008s and the recession, et cetera. And so they still exist today. I want to make sure that they are really a part of our housing solutions in Atlanta for people like you that wanted to buy a home. Um, but even short of that, you wanted to uh, move from one place to the next, even in a rental situation. And so we have to also make sure we strengthen our uh, our tenants' rights, to make sure that there's a landlord-tenant connection that our chief housing officer and individuals that work for that uh, chief housing officer is able to navigate and really work with AVLF, Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, or Atlanta Legal Aid Society to be able to file uh, briefings and to file and, and say, hey, let's not uh, evict this person. We're working on a case to be able to help you get to the next place. The other thing I'll say is Open Doors was a great resource that, that came about recently uh, through this continuum of care partners for home to be able to say hey there is uh, there are apartments that we have pre already secured for uh, situations like this where people have immediately slid into uh, an eviction situation where we can rapidly rehouse them into an apartment complex uh, somewhere in Atlanta or Metro Atlanta that exists now we just have to be able to do more of it with more funding and the coordination is there I mean I'm talking about ways that we have coordinated more, better and better over the last uh, six to seven years years to now, I think we should um, be in a better position to do that, but I will hire a chief Thank housing you, officer Dickens, that knows how to triage these situations. Thank you. Councilman Brown. So thank you for your story. Um, when I was 12 years old, uh, my mother went to prison for five years and my, and my father had a nervous breakdown and could not sustain us and we lost everything. We became homeless. and. It was a terrible situation because the pathway to us reclaiming our lives just seemed completely out of touch 
And it was obvious that the people that had allocated the resources and the opportunities were completely detached from the reality of what everyday people were facing to be able to reacclimate back into society. Um, two years ago, I fought with Governor Abbott in Houston, Texas, because my mom had become homeless again because of her federal record. Um, from an incident that occurred 25 years ago. They, it kept her from being able to move into housing. No one would give her a house because there was no statutory limitations with how far a landlord or a property owner could go back in their criminal history so they could always hold it against those individuals. So one of the things I, I think is incredibly important as mayor, I will be working with the state legislation as well as our governor to help ensure that there are limitations in how far someone can go back in if they're allowed to discriminate against someone because of their background, especially when they've already paid their dues back to society. They should not be continued to be placed in a burden where they cannot move their lives forward. And I think that that's incredibly important because had we had those opportunities, we, my, my family probably, we would have probably had a different life. And I don't regret anything I've been through, but we've got to work better on those pathways to success with really helping folks to move out of those conditions. We've also got to do a better job with financial literacy and, and credit because those are two burdens that really, unfortunately, Unfortunately, keep people down. I mean, I've experienced it even in my adulthood. So I think with, with entities like Equifax that exist and are housed here in Atlanta, we need to have a better program with them where their credit is not keeping them from moving their lives forward. So those are just some of the ways in which I would work to ensure that no resident has to go through some of the obstacles you've faced in your life. Thank you, Mr. Brown. President Moore. Ms. Holloman, thank you for sharing your story, and I see you were up against it. Um, when I heard some inflection points in what you were talking about, first you said that you had a previous eviction, uh, and that's going to be very difficult because people, uh, particularly in the private sector, they're going to look at your report and see that you've been evicted before, and so they take that as a risk. Uh, the second point you made that was very difficult was the previous conviction. Uh, so, you know, even if you went to the Atlanta Housing Authority, you would have a hard time if not not be able uh, to get in, depending on the length of time, et cetera. I didn't hear you say it, but I'm not sure if there was a financial component to it, even though you were trying to save up and save your money to move on. And so what could the city do in that instance? One, as I said earlier, while we're looking at building affordable units on city-owned property, we need to preserve 10 to 20% of those units so that we can use them in instances where you, somebody needs to be housed immediately. Uh, and we can also look at maybe sure having we have a fund if it was a financial component to it, if we could have helped work with uh, the landlord to give you a little bit more time and to help you to find another place to go. And that will be what the Department of Housing and our housing chief would also be doing is to be there to be an intervener and try to see if we can't get you through housing authority, which in your instance you may have had issues with or some other means. Uh, and we've got to work with our private landowners to get them to relax some of the rules because those rules make it very difficult. And if you're not enough years away from that uh, eviction, they just won't consider you. And of course, even trying to find housing that you can afford and not eat up the savings that you're trying to move on. Uh, many programs are out there to help you, of course, like NACA and others that have been mentioned uh, in terms of trying to get you on the track to your home ownership. And I would love to hear more of your story to find out how you were able to help yourself and to get yourself back on track. But I think you have given us a very great example of many of the barriers that are out there that we as a city need to help uh, our citizens overcome. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Reed. Mrs. Holloman, thank you so much for what you shared today. Uh, I think that you needed your city to stand up for you. Now, so many folks in the condition that you were in, they don't have access to lawyers. They don't have a family member that's a lawyer. They don't have anybody to stand up for them and give them breathing room to make sound decisions at the most difficult moment in their lives. 
And we're going to create an office of anti-displacement. It's going to be staffed by social workers, thought leaders, and lawyers. So there's a place for you to actually get up and walk in a room and say, I need some help and guidance. We should also have an office within the Atlanta Housing Authority that meets the needs of people in your situation. The landlord knew about the felony conviction of your husband, I believe, when he allowed you to stay there the first time. And according to what you shared, you paid your rent in a timely manner for a long period of time. And what you needed was for your city to push back because the landlord was just dealing with you. He knew what situation your husband was in. And more and more in Atlanta, everywhere in our city, because the value of land and real estate is going up, the private sector is using forceful tactics to push people out of situations, whether it's rental, whether it's renting a unit. If they can get more money, they move on from you in an aggressive way, which what, this is what feels like happened to you. And you need a city to push back. The folks who have been here for the entire time should not be pushed out now that the city is having unprecedented prosperity. So I look forward to hearing about exactly what happened to you, but you needed your city to stand up for you. And there needs to be a place where anybody can pick up the phone. All of these senior citizens who are getting cold call, offered $100,000 for a house that's $350,000. They don't have lawyers. They don't have anybody to assess the transaction. We're going to have the city stand up for them. Thank you. And thank you to all the candidates, and thank you, everyone, for being here and everyone out there in virtual world. We really appreciate it. Of course, the election is Tuesday, November 2nd. You've been listening to excerpts from a recent mayoral forum on homelessness. A programming note coming up later in the week, We'll present segments from all of the Atlanta City Council president candidates. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. And a reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.